Hello and welcome to Conversations in Clean Tech, the podcast that celebrates the clean tech industry and the people that power it, brought to you by Brightsmith. I'm your host, Jenny Gladman, and in this sixth season, we delve deeper into the world of clean tech startups and their founders, from inspiring stories and words of wisdom to the toughest challenges. You can expect to learn about how these pioneering startups and the founders at their helm are propelling us towards a cleaner, greener tomorrow. In addition, they'll be offering you timeless teachings to enlighten, engage, and inspire everyone, everywhere to live their purpose. So I'm very excited to have a new co-host joining me today. Alexa is Brightsmith's very own carbon geek. She is one of the founding members of the Women in Carbon Initiative. She has an academic background in sustainability and a love of all things nature. So Alexa, welcome to my side of the table. Thank you, Jen. Thanks so much for the introduction. Um, I'm super excited to announce today's guest. Um, We'll be joined by someone who's very special, someone who's very passionate and dedicated to the environment, as well as an inspiration to all female entrepreneurs. Her unwavering determination is committed to helping the VCM scale and secure crucial funding for nature-based solutions. Anna Hori, CEO and co-founder of Respira International, Thank you for joining this conversation in clean tech. We're super excited to have you and we're really keen to hear about Respira and about yourself. Um, would you be able to kind of start off by sharing the story of Respira's creation and what inspired you to start this venture? Sure. And thank you very much for having me with you today. And thank you for you know, such a lovely introduction as well. It's really interesting because I find myself now in, in, in my mid-50s becoming an activist, something that I wasn't when I was a lot younger, so I think I'm doing it back to front. But um, the inspiration for, for starting Respira really came from um, a, a company that um, I was working with, helping them raise funding, and that company was a sustainable um, forestry logging business based in um, in Peru in Iquitos and we were struggling to raise you know we were struggling to raise money for it and this was around um, 2018 where at the same time we also noticed that there was a you know significant change in attitudes towards climate change that sort of whole debate of is it real or not real largely had gone away particularly um, here in, in Europe And um, we started to see Extinction Rebellion and and, and Greta really doing an amazing job of raising awareness of the problem of climate change. And this was obviously preceded and supported by the Paris Agreement and all the top-down regulatory pressures that are being put on on companies to disclose their their carbon footprints, compliance markets. And we had an aha moment where we thought, well, hang on a second. we shouldn't be raising money to um, cut down trees, sustainable though it is, um, because the problem of illegal uh, deforestation is is quite significant, so this is a way of tackling it. But actually we should be finding ways to reward nature and pay nature for the ecosystem services that it's providing. And that's where we thought, right, there is a significant business opportunity here, but one where we can make a real impact and a real contribution to the fight against climate change. And that's why we set up Respira. That's amazing. Thank you so much. And for those who aren't familiar with the voluntary carbon market, would you be able just to provide some insight as to why it's essential 
that we support and finance carbon projects from your perspective? I think it, we, we need to take a step back first. Nature, and what do we mean by nature? Everything from um, improved agricultural management to avoided deforestation to reforestation, restoring degraded lands, um, mangrove restoration, protection of biodiversity, the scope is significant. And nature on its own can account for around 25% of the emissions reductions that we need to make by 2030 if we're going to hold the rate at which the world is warming up. So, you know, that's that's the really important piece. Um, Nature and nature-based solutions require something like $398 billion of investment per annum between now and, and, and 2030, if we're going to stand a chance of meeting the targets that we have been setting ourselves. So that's why nature is really important. The voluntary carbon markets are um, one one, one sector in this you know, effort for financing nature-based solutions. And the role that it plays is essentially it puts the price on the carbon dioxide that has either been removed from the atmosphere or we have avoided from emitting into the atmosphere. Could be from you know, cutting down trees, just coming back to trees. This is where I've become a passionate advocate. But deforestation accounts for 10 to 15% of emissions every year. So you can see that nature can play a really significant role in this. And the trick is, how do we create those economic incentives to make it worthwhile to protect nature? And that is the role that the voluntary carbon markets can play. It puts um, a price on, um, well, again, let me take a step back. If you remove a ton of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere through planting a tree, you can then issue a carbon credit against that removal ton. There's a whole rigorous process around that, but I'm not going to go into you know, the whole kind of sort of technical aspects of it. I'm just trying to keep this really high level. And then those carbon credits can be bought by corporates um, as part of their actions towards mitigating climate change. Obviously, they first of all have to decarbonize their own operations, but they can also compensate for their own emissions on that pathway. And so they can buy these carbon credits in the voluntary carbon markets and use it, as I said, as compensation. Those revenues then flow back to the to the project developers and the communities in predominantly the, the global south. And so they, at the same time, are deriving economic rewards and returns from protecting nature. It's so interesting to hear. And I know that the voluntary carbon market is obviously only one side of it. And it's constantly being defined and also a market that is under a lot of scrutiny at the minute. And I think that it's really important to hear from voices like yours in kind of understanding why it is important, why that we support these. But also at the end of the day, we're all trying to achieve kind of the same goal here. And through only looking at the lens of the voluntary carbon market, how do you believe that this is actually an effective way to mitigate climate change? In several ways. Um, first of all, project developers of, of carbon projects need funding and, and, and financing. So that can come through the through the voluntary carbon markets. We're seeing, you know, an increasing trend towards private sector and corporates wanting to provide the funding and the finance um, to get these projects off the ground. And again, you know, um, I'm just going to try and keep this as simple as possible. But what do we mean by these projects? It could be, you know, reforesting um, degraded land that needs that needs capital. 
So um, that is provided through the, could be provided either through through governments, but in, in increasing sort of times that we find ourselves where government finance and funding is constrained, this is where the private sector can step in and play its role. You then have to find a, a, you know, a route to market for the carbon credits that are being issued by those projects so that they're profitable. Um, and those credits can then be sold to, again, other corporates who, who might want to use them, as I described earlier, to compensate for their own, for their own emissions. So you've got the funding of the projects, but then essentially you've got to then be able to sort of market and sell the, you know, the, um, the byproduct of those projects, which are, which are the carbon credits in this case. And as I had kind of mentioned before, since this is a market that's still taking shape and it is, it has a lot of controversy around it, I think it would be really interesting just to hear from your point of view, how do we take into account integrity into this market and how do we almost overcome those challenges? The projects have got to be of good quality. Integrity is a word that is being, you know, used a lot, particularly in the particularly in the carbon markets. And so you can say to yourself, well, you know, what does what does integrity mean? And I think the whole focus around this is to essentially ensure that the developers of these projects are developing them in a way that warrants the issuance of those carbon credits, i.e. that those tons of CO2 that are being removed or avoided are, you know, real. They are measured correctly. Um, they have been um, verified. They are additional. Um, what do we mean by by additional? This means that that project wouldn't have gone ahead if it wasn't for the carbon revenues. So essentially, it needs those carbon revenues in order to be viable. And I think that that's where a lot of the crux um, around, you know, the the incentives that we need to put in place um, comes into comes into play. I, I'll just contra- I'll contrast that with a lot of you know, renewable energy projects now in you know in, in Europe and the UK. They've already got grid parity, so they don't need carbon credits to be profitable and viable enterprises in their own right. So therefore, they wouldn't qualify under the additionality criteria. That's just to you know, try and um, illustrate what we need, mean by that. Permanence is also another important factor, you know, that this, um, that this time has been um, removed um, for a significant period of time, or if not indefinitely, depending on the kind of technology that is being used for those, for those removal credits. And I think that that's what we sort of mean around um, integrity. There are also other really important aspects of this, again, depending on the types of projects, but this particularly applies to, to nature-based projects, that there is um, revenue sharing with communities, i.e. that the communities that are um, supporting these projects are getting their fair share of the revenues that are being created, which is also really important because um, this then creates you know, improved livelihoods, improved health, education for women, etc. And I and I think that it's sort of these additional SDGs that are associated with a lot of these projects that often goes untalked about in the in the in, in the press. So where there is a lot of this scrutiny, we um, actually forget about this sort of really important aspect of improved livelihoods, improved di- biodiversity, and a lot of the other co-benefits that are associated with many of these nature-based solutions. It's a really fascinating insight you share and, and we've had um, a number of people from the carbon space on the podcast so far but nobody's sitting from your your exact viewpoint so it's really great to hear about kind of where you sit. Now one of the really important things to us on this show is is not just the markets it, that is hugely important and we're really focused on educating people 
Um, but we also like to talk about the, the person behind the market and behind the organization. So a bit about your entrepreneurial journey. So I imagine like every entrepreneur, there's ups and there's downs. And I think I know that from speaking with you before, but I'd love to start off with kind of your proudest moments, those moments since you've started Respira, where you've kind of looked around and thought, wow, we've actually really achieved something and you've got that sense of pride. I am really proud of the, of the work that we have done in the, in the voluntary cover markets. And I think the role that we have um, played in um, raising awareness of voluntary cover markets and the role that nature plays and the importance um, in protecting nature. But I'm particularly proud of the of the particular sort of business model that we have um, developed and evolved since we started the business, I think four years ago now. What we do is that we support developers carbon projects by giving them a route to market. We use our own balance sheet to provide long-term offtake agreements to project developers. You know, similar similar to what you would do in, in renewable energy when you put in place a car purchase agreement. So essentially, you know, you're committing to buy the current and forward streams of carbon credits that are going to be issued by those projects. And that's important and useful because it gives the developers of the carbon projects and the communities behind that, you know, guaranteed certainty of cash flows, which they can then use to, you know, forward plan, raise additional funding or, you know, for whatever other needs. What we did that was, I'm going to be brave enough and use the word innovative when we were devising our offtake agreements, um, was that we put in place a revenue sharing agreement with the with the carbon project developers. So we guarantee a floor price, and that's the price that we commit to buy at. Um, so if prices fall be, be below that floor, we're still paying the floor. So to that extent, you know, the project developers have got their downside protected. But then on the upside, um, we then will also rebate a proportion of the gross margin that we eventually make on those carbon credits. So that enables, again, the, the project developers and the communities that sit behind that to be able to participate in the appreciation of carbon prices. And I'm really proud of that. Um, I think, you know, especially, you know, now you see increased focus on revenue sharing back to communities. And I think it's, you know, I think it's, I think it's great that that attention is now really focusing on, on the places where it's important. That's great. And um, and you speak about communities a lot. And I think um, it's a, it's an amazing world that you've got kind of your community within Respira. Um, you've got your communities that you're actually partnering with on the um, the carbon pro- um, projects. But I'd also just like to touch on um, the women in carbon community, which I know you've spoken on a panel of and a kind of a proud member of. Um, how do you feel like that kind of supports the industry? I think it's I think it's very important for women to support each other and to provide that safe space where you can where you can be where you can be yourself working with a you know working with a lot of men um my first stage of my career was in financial markets um and I think probably you know at the sort of kind of rough end of financial markets you know I certainly know how difficult it can be to be a woman and to be recognized and valued by our attributes and ways of thinking and you know acting and and, and interacting and I'm not of the school where I want to put stereotypes on things but you know certainly our approach to problem solving to interacting to emoting can be quite difficult for men so 
um, if you're surrounded by a lot of men, you know, you can sort of sometimes see them going, oh, <laughs> is she going to get emotional right now? Oh, my God, what's going to happen here? Or <laughs> something really annoying like that. And you're thinking, I'm not emotional. I'm just passionate. <laughs> Deal with it. So I, I think, but I think to have a, you know, to have a space where, where women can support each other is, is, is fantastic and it's really important and to just be able to, you know, discuss things openly without thinking that, oh, how am I going to be perceived or how am I going to be judged? It's really important. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, and talking about kind of the need for support, and I mentioned this before, the journey of an entrepreneur is not always all exciting. There are the highs and the lows. Um, speaking of kind of the the opposite end of the spectrum to those kind of moments of pride and positivity, I'm sure there's been some kind of real challenges along the way. So can you give us some insight into what they've looked like in terms of the biggest challenges you've faced and also how you've overcome them? The challenges of setting up a business are, 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 are numerous. Um, I think it also depends as well on you know what industry you're, you're you're setting up a business in. When we set up Respira, uh, I think we were at the very early stages of you know what I call the cover markets 2.0, the 1.0 being the Kyoto, the Kyoto CDM days of the of the carbon markets, and we were. A young team um, in a in a in market that wasn't shaped yet. So I think you know we were partly on that journey of shaping this new this new uh, incarnation of the VCM and going out and raising money with a new business model um, is quite difficult, right? And um, I think we were very very lucky to get very early support from Capricorn. Um, uh, Capricorn in the in the US, they've been a fantastic shareholder and they're very impact driven. So it was, I really mean this, amazing to be supported by them. But the fundraising is ongoing and it's always difficult to raise money, but it's much more difficult to raise money when you've got a, a new sort of kind of business model in a relatively new sector that's evolving. I mean, just to give you an example. So, you know, you're, you're, you're writing out your business plan and what do you use? to model carbon prices when actually, you know, at the time there were no carbon pricing curves, for example. So it's all very much based on assumptions. So the lows are fundraising, um, always fundraising. It's always a lot harder than you think it's going to be. And it's going to take a lot longer than you think it's going to take. So absolutely. Um, and I guess just as kind of a, a segue onto that, you obviously have faced a lot of challenges within that in building Respira and your own career, but would also be really interesting to know is what are some of those valuable lessons that you've learned throughout your career, maybe not necessarily only throughout Respira, that have really influenced your commitment to the kind of impact-driven work that you do today? What kind of keeps you going? What keeps me going is how important nature is and how important nature is to climate change. And sometimes I get really depressed when I see the amount of attacks that, you know, um, uh, uh, directed at the voluntary cover markets. I just, you know, I just sort of kind of think, why, why are you attacking, you know, what is still relatively a small, a small sector, right? If we, you know, if 158 billion was, was put in, you know, was invested in nature-based solutions last year, I mean, only 2 billion of that are from the voluntary carbon markets and yet it's so it's so key and it's so important and 
all this uh, negativity really needs to be really needs to be turned around, and we have to focus a lot more on you know the sort of crucial importance of restoring nature, protecting nature, because we're all paying the price. I mean, you, you watch you watch the news, and what do we have every year? It's sort of heat waves, and the heat waves get worse and worse and worse. And I don't know, fifty two degrees in Spain, forest fires that just burn on in unprecedented way in, in, in Canada, you know, the list goes on, floods, hurricanes, the price is paid, the price is paid throughout, your insurance premiums are going up, you speak to insurers now, and they'll say that, you know, certain real estate assets in the developed world now are, are, are uninsurable because of the effects of climate change. So I think that's what keeps me going, we just need to keep drumming that drum hard and, 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 and not giving up. And thinking, um, Thinking back to your earlier career, um, and it's something I think a lot of us do when you get to a certain point of your career, what would I go back and tell my younger self? And you mentioned this at the start, you became kind of a um, a campaigner later on in your career. If you could go back and start again, is there anything that you tell your younger self to do different? No, because if I did, I wouldn't be where I am now. <laughs> is that, have I made mistakes? I have made tons of mistakes. I mean, tons and tons of mistakes. But if I hadn't made all of those mistakes, I wouldn't have learned all the lessons that I have learned um, now and, and have enabled me to be where I am now and to have the conviction that I have now. Um, you know, I'm sure there are many things I could have done better or differently, but I believe in path dependency, right? One, you know, one step leads to another step. And so I'm, I'm, really, I'm really happy to... To, to, to be doing the work that I'm doing right now. Um, I just hope that we are successful in it. No, I'm, and I'm absolutely sure you will be. And I think so much of the success in this sector comes from the passion that people have because um, you see a lot of sectors that are more straightforward. You don't actually need quite as much conviction. I think one where you're constantly battling against the press and against a lot of controversy um, it needs that kind of human passion and the power of teams. And having had the pleasure of meeting some of your team, I think you've, you know, you've, you've built an amazing team of people. And that in itself goes such a long way towards making sure that you do achieve the success that you deserve. Thank you. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess um, it's, it's actually really nice to hear that you wouldn't do anything any differently. But flipping that question around very slightly, um, for those people who are kind of embarking on their careers now, <laughs> either coming out of school or out of university, or perhaps they're in their first job and feeling a little bit in, disenfranchised by what they're doing if they're not working in kind of a career with purpose, what advice would you give to those people about how they can enter into this space, be it the voluntary carbon market or kind of the, the broader clean tech or clean energy industry? If you really want something, then you just have to keep bashing away until you until you get it and, 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 and not give up. And it's it's really difficult. Um, I think I think in this particular sector, I hope that the opportunities are still huge and um, that it's open. And I and I believe that. So if if um, people want to get into um, the voluntary carbon markets, I would think. But you know, um, I'd love I'd love to know you know from from you, Alexa, whether this is the case. But I think this should be a relatively easy space to get into. I think it's probably much harder if you say, well, I want to you know I want to be an investment banker and I want to work at Goldman Sachs. <laughs> then I think I think the competition is going to be is going to be a lot greater. So if if you know what you really want to do, then I 
my advice is always just don't give up. And if you get knocked down, don't give up. And if you get knocked down again, don't give up because eventually you will, you will succeed. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that is really good advice. And it's been so amazing to really see more and more people show interest specifically in this sector from all ages, even just seeing it from the our own Women in Carbon events. We have students, I think our youngest attendee was 16 years old, also wanting to know what was happening. And it's really important to also have just that kind of diversity of mindsets and thoughts and everything. And, and we really see this as a growing market, which is so amazing. I guess also what I wanted to ask you is, what do you think needs to happen in this market for us to ensure its success? What do you kind of see in the future? How do you see it taking shape? I hope it's not a fantasy, but my dream <laughs> is that compliance markets open up to allow for voluntary carbon credits into them and that we um, pull in all sectors of the economy to fall under the regulated compliance markets, but that those compliance markets allow for, for voluntary carbon credits as well, so that it's not just, yes, corporates have to decarbonize, but instead of you know issuing um, allowances, um, let's allow um, for the use of voluntary carbon credits as well, because that's another way of channeling that very much needed private capital to nature. So that that I think could have a huge impact, but um, I'm not sure how much of a pipe <laughs> dream that is. No, I think I think that's definitely a good dream, and I hope that a lot of people would also agree with that. Maybe from more of a Respira perspective, what do you see as Respira's plan for the future or the vision of the company? Well, we're going to keep doing what we're doing. Um, our main focus is to channel private capital into the global south, into nature-based projects. So a very important part of our activities is to keep raising that institutional capital into different types of investment vehicles um, so that we can then use that to support and underwrite uh, the projects that, that we're working with. Um, we, we would like to see this becoming much more of an institutional um, asset class, investable asset class. Um, and it's through generating, through having the ability to generate you know, financial returns for all involved um, that we can, I think, create the, uh, the, the, the sort of kind of incentives also for the institutional capital to enter this sector. I mean, we said that at the beginning that it's about rewarding nature for what it does and putting a price on, on the ecosystem services that nature provides. And you, you, need, to have a, you need to have a market, therefore, for, for that. And, and, and that's really the sort of core of our activities and what we're going to continue to, to do. And then um, working with corporates on the other side, who uh, you know who've got credible decarbonisation pathways and who are looking to use carbon credits as you know, compensation along that pathway once they you know get to their own net zero. Brilliant. Um, well, I mean, it's it's great to hear the vision. It's very clear. Um, you're clearly very driven to get there, and I think we have no doubt that you'll do it. And are honoured to be a small part of your journey in getting there. But I just wanted to touch back on one thing that you said earlier, because I think it's it's really important to us as a business. Um, was around kind of this being a space that it is easy for people to enter, and I couldn't agree more. Of all the careers out there, joining an exponentially growing young industry should be the easiest place to get into. So for those people who are thinking this could be a possible career. The time is certainly now to enter. Um, you know, there are not lots of experts out there. There are very few. So 
if you have the right passion um, and the right conviction and you believe in in this sector, then definitely you should be um, considering a career in it. So thanks for touching on that, Anna, and thank you for joining us today and telling us your story and also for the amazing work that you're doing in the um, in the carbon markets. Thank you very much for having me. It's actually been a pleasure. Lovely. And thank you for being a great co-host, Alexa. I will invite you back. <laughs> happy to always come back. <laughs> thank you. Take care.